Hello, I'm Father Mitch Packwood. Welcome to EWTN Live, where we bring you guests from around the world. About 101 years ago, not far from our EWTN studios, where I'm sitting right now, a Catholic priest was murdered on the front steps of his rectory in broad daylight on a main street in downtown Birmingham. He was killed by an itinerant Methodist minister for receiving his 18-year-old daughter into the Catholic Church and then marrying her to a 44-year-old dark-skinned man. The Ku Klux Klan heavily influenced the trial in many ways, resulting in the murderer's scandalous acquittal. Tonight, we'll premiere a new documentary called Father James E. Coyle, Life and Legacy. It digs into the details surrounding the people and circumstances associated with this historical moment in the history of Birmingham, Alabama, something that U.S. Circuit Judge William H. Pryor, Jr., calls the, quote, the O.J. Simpson trial of 100 years ago. Now, stay with us after this documentary, and we will talk with EWTN's own Jim Pinto, who is the founder and director of the Father James E. Coyle Memorial Project, as well as the priest who currently holds Father Coyle's position as pastor and rector of what is now the Cathedral of St. Paul in Birmingham, Alabama. That will be Father Brian Jerabat. We hope you enjoy this documentary and stay with us for the conversation afterwards, which will be about Father James Coyle, life and legacy. discovered Father Coyle when I first moved to Birmingham, Alabama, almost 40 years ago. I was a lapsed Catholic, actually, and serving as an Episcopal priest, doing the work of racial reconciliation in particular. But I had heard when I came here about this Father Coyle, and I heard it from a Protestant minister, uh, that this Catholic priest years back, 1921, had been assassinated by another minister of another denomination. He said for performing this what they thought was an interracial marriage between this Catholic, he's really a dark-skinned Puerto Rican fellow, and uh, this convert girl from Catholicism. Father Coyle uh, was an, not just an important historical figure, he was, he was really a champion of poor people. He was a champion of minorities who had come to 
the Birmingham area to live and work in this booming steel town. Uh, he was a champion for immigrants, and he was a champion for his religious faith. James Cole was born in 1873 to Owen and Margaret Cole. Both are educators who had high expectations for their son. James grew up in County Roscommon, Ireland. He attended Mungret College in Limerick, and after graduating, went to the Pontifical North American College in Rome. He was ordained a priest at age 23 in May of 1896. Then something happened that had a powerful impact on Father James E. Cole's life and ministry. He was sent to the United States as a missionary priest for the Diocese of Alabama. So just in the late 1800s, he came as a missionary priest with his sister, Marcella, who would take care of a little teenage girl. He was assigned to the Cathedral of the Immaculate Conception. He later became rector and director of the McGill Institute a Catholic school for boys from Mobile. And so he ministered there for several years at McGill Institute for Boys, had a real heart for young people. He was an educator just like his dad, like his mom. During his eight years in Mobile, Father Cole had become comfortable with his ministry and found his involvement with the school to be very fulfilling. And then, as often happens, another unexpected change came for Father Cole. Father O'Reilly was the pastor here before Father Coyle. Father O'Reilly died tragically, okay? So he was involved with the reserve troops here in the state of Alabama. He was the chaplain to them. He was thrown from his horse and broke his neck. Great, great Irish priest. Thank God for the Irish missionary priest that, that came to the South. So he died tragically. He was a renowned man. He was part of this, you know, large parish here. And uh, so then Father Coyle was called to, to come as the pastor. In the fall of 1904, Bishop Edward Allen appointed Father Cole pastor of St. Paul's Catholic Church in Birmingham, Alabama. This altar was one of the first things that Father Coyle did when he came to St. Paul's. It wasn't the cathedral at, at that time, it was just St. Paul's Church. So he came here in 1904, and he ministered here in 1904 to 1921. And for whatever reason, he says, I want to commission an altar on a special altar built for this place. And as you can see, it's, it's a beautiful altar, um, and it's uh, Carrara marble and Mexican onyx were the pillars that, that are here, the columns that are here, just you know, it's beautifully done. It's exquisite, not overly done, but, but a beautiful, beautiful altar. And you know, the altar is that, that place of, that's associated with sacrifice. And so this is the place for the Catholic people where the one sacrifice of Christ is made present again to us in our worship. We think of the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper, which takes place here at the altar, as the source and summit of our faith, the source and the summit. And so he was here. He was here on that fateful day, August 11th, 1921. And he was here with this young couple, Pedro Guzman and Ruth Stevenson. 
So he was doing a wedding the day of his assassination. And so it is a story that involves centrally a family, uh, the Stevenson family in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, Edwin Stevenson, his wife, Mary, and his daughter, Ruth Stevenson, who was 18 at the time that she decided, as a young woman, that she was going to make decisions uh, on her own. And one day she came on her own to visit with Father Coyle and came to the porch of Father Coyle the very porch he would be assassinated on six years later. And she had a conversation with him. You know, what are you about? What's the Catholic Church about? She said in grand jury testimony six years later after Father Coy was assassinated that she became convinced that she needed to become Catholic. She had a fear that she might go to hell if she didn't become Catholic because what she had heard, she really believed. It wasn't Father Coyle going after her to proselytize her. She came to him and really became convinced. I, I believe, you know, what this man's saying, and old man Stevenson said, if you ever go back, there will be violence. That was not the kind of free thinking that uh, the households in Birmingham were used to according young women. This is the 1920s. The nation is in the throes of great change. Prohibition is in force. Women are pushing new boundaries. Communism is on the rise in parts of the world causing a red scare. And you've got the Ku Klux Klan. These are your neighbors. Some are your friends. Many were pillars of Birmingham society. The Klan was an organization that attacked and terrorized the black community in the South, but it was much more than that. Uh, and the, the Klan was a terrorist organization toward Catholics too, toward immigrants. Edwin Stevenson was a member of the Klan. As an itinerant Methodist preacher, he used his credentials not to serve as pastor of a church, but to allow him to perform marriages Birmingham City Hall at the time was next door to St. Paul's, and Stevenson could be found wandering the halls, offering his services to couples with newly acquired marriage license. Father Coyle, I think, was meeting with a number of priests for a lunch or something, and they said, hey, somebody's here, they want you to do the wedding, so well, who, who is it? And so they said, well, it's Ruth Stevenson and, and Pedro. And so Father Coyle said, Ruth Stevenson? He says to the other priest there, old man Stevenson's daughter wants me to do her wedding. He says, I guess the man's gonna kill me. So he's doing the wedding of Pedro and Ruth. He feels like they're of age. He's not violating any laws, although people were gonna see this wedding as a black man and a white woman, which was illegal. But Pedro was a Puerto Rican. Father Coyle wasn't violating any law. They were of age, and she's a convert girl, she's Catholic, and so he's, he's gonna do, do the wedding because he's a man that believes in their freedom and their liberty as adults to come together and to take their vows if that's what they're going to do. And so he, he gets ready to exchange those vows with them and to witness that. There's two witnesses to the wedding, his sister, Marcella, who came with him from Ireland, and another priest, and he says to them, move away from here, go into the sacristy while I do this wedding. He 
says that because he knows that violence can come his way. He knows he might be killed. It's so important to understand that Father Coyle knew for years his life was under threat. When Stevenson found out that his daughter had run away in the middle of the day and gotten married to Pedro Guzman, he was absolutely enraged. Father Coyle does what he always does. He goes out on the porch to say his prayers. Stevenson was pacing up and down, waiting, waiting, waiting. And then Coyle is saying his prayers. And it's best we understand that he came through a gate, walked up at point blank range, and shot three times. He receives the last rites before he dies. And at 743, He's pronounced dead. He dies at the hospital that the priest before him began, St. Vincent's Hospital. It was said to be the most people to ever attend a funeral in Birmingham. The killing took place in broad daylight on the porch of the priest's home in front of a street full of witnesses. When Stevenson shot Father Coyle, he had the smoking gun in his hand, and he walked up to the courthouse, which was right next door, where he was a marrying parson. The window was open in the courthouse. He went through the window with a gun in his hand, and he said, I just killed the priest. So there's never any mystery that Reverend Stevenson had just shot an unarmed priest on the porch of his home, yet it took the prosecutor, Joe Tate, two weeks to get them even to indict the case. Two weeks. But it wasn't the opening shut case you might think it should have been. Hugo Black, the lead defense lawyer, the brilliant mastermind of what was truly an unjust trial, would later join the Ku Klux Klan, run for the United States Senate, and would eventually obtain a seat on the Supreme Court of the United States. But Joe Tate went head to head with Hugo Black, in spite pressure from the community and the Ku Klux Klan. You have to admire uh, Joe Tate. His decision to prosecute this case, to present it to a grand jury first, his dedication uh, to his duty as a prosecutor uh, was uh, exemplary. Uh, this is what we should expect from a minister of justice. As the circuit solicitor for uh, Birmingham, Alabama, Joe Tate could have passed on this case. It would have been easier for him to not take the case. He could have just let it die in the grand jury. Uh, he could have not pressed for the charge to come out of the grand jury as hard as he did. But instead, he wanted to do the right thing for the law, for Ruth Stevenson, and for Father Cole. He wanted justice. Justice had to be done for Father Coyle. The defendant, Edwin Stevenson, was Klan. You had an all-white, all-male jury. You had a number of Klansmen sitting on that jury. 
the Klan circled the wagons. And from the start, this very powerful organization in town, the Ku Klux Klan, was behind the defense of Reverend Stevenson, uh, beloved him as a member, and had every intention of doing whatever they could to uh, make sure that he wasn't held to account for the murder of Father Coyle. When Ruth decided to become a Catholic and marry a Catholic, uh, this was kind of shocking uh, impudence, uh, a shocking display of uh, lack of respect or disrespect of uh, her parents. Uh, many thought that what Stevenson did was entirely defensible. Stevenson says that he feared that Father Coyle was going for a gun and that they tussled and that he had to shoot him. There was no gun, there was no tussle as far as we know. And there was a witness in a car who saw the whole thing and described it the way I'm describing it, that he just came up point blank range and shot Father Coyle. They wouldn't allow him to testify. They wouldn't take his testimony. It's remarkable to think that this trial, which occurred about a, a hundred years ago, was so unjust. This was an injustice. And uh, so it was a real travesty, and it was covered by the New York Times. It was covered all over the country. Uh, this was also a very famous uh, legal event. This was the O.J. Simpson trial, really, of a hundred years ago. It was like one of the trials of the century to see if a man would be prosecuted for killing a Catholic priest in the Deep South in Birmingham with the bigotry that was there. And the answer was, yeah, they would get away with it. So Joe Tate had a lot to lose here. Uh, and uh, yet, he ignored all those signs. And it was very clear up until the very last minute, his closing argument, that he was intent upon bringing Reverend Stevenson to justice. And he also clearly knew that this was a community and the jurors in that jury box um, might have very different feelings um, uh, than his. And he spoke directly to them. If you go into the jury room and throw out the evidence and render a not guilty verdict, gentlemen of the jury, you will have all the narrow-minded, redneck people come out and pat you on the back. But for the remainder of your lives, you will have your conscience to prick and sting you. Hugo Black's trial tactics in the Stevenson trial were despicable. Um, his appeals to racial and religious bigotry in that trial um, were not the tactics of a noble lawyer. They were dishonorable. Trial was a real farce, what took place. And, um, but he got, he got Stevenson off on temporary kind of insanity thing. And uh, they gave him his gun back. You know, after the thing just gave him his gun, he was, he's a free man. As could be expected, the reaction to this verdict was divided. In the Birmingham community and beyond, people of faith were in disbelief that 
such a heinous crime was committed and that Edwin Stevenson was released of any responsibility for his actions. On the other side, um, there was ce celebration. There was vindication. Um, Reverend Stevenson was paraded around the state at Klan rallies, uh, was viewed as a hero. My first realization that there was violence uh, in the world um, happened when I was about nine. And I was in a department store with my mother, and we were walking around just looking at the things, and the, the feeling them and touching them and, and shopping. And she stopped very cold, and she pulled me next to her, and she said, see that man? That man killed Father Coyle. And I really didn't know Father Coyle. I had not known him, because uh, he had been dead for a while, even in that stage. That was, you know, a, a real shock to me. And that, first of all, that anyone would kill anybody, but that anyone would kill a priest. It's an important story in American history, one that we have largely lost, I think, uh, the intensity of the anti-Catholicism that existed in this country. I think mostly we've forgotten that. We're seeing in our time um, persecution of the church in other ways, but that are still real, uh, just like they were in his time. In his time, there was the uh, discrimination against Catholics and the exclusion of Catholics from certain areas of life, and uh, even violence against Catholics, as in his own case, being murdered. Well, so maybe there's not acts of physical violence as much now, but we do have uh, legal challenges against the church. We have uh, the changing of social mores that, that have us um, seem feeling as if we're kind of on the outs of society in some ways and that we're maybe um, no longer relevant. Uh, that's a temptation, at least, that we can sometimes feel. These issues don't go away. Um, we still have to learn how to, to live with uh, the strangers among us. Uh, we, ha we still have to uh, know how to live in a pluralistic society where people have different uh, religious beliefs. Uh, we still have conflicts about race and religion uh, that, and economic class uh, that divide us. Um, the issues that Father Coyle was grappling with were not only the issues of his day, they're the issues of today as well. What happened to Father Coyle, to say the least? as relates to civil rights, it was a tragedy, devastation. He rose up as a martyr, fighting for what is right for all people. It's important that we remember where we came from in Birmingham and in Alabama, and that today we're in the middle of that journey. And I hope that when my great-grandchildren are born, that we've completed that journey successfully, that we are all living together in a state of peace and understanding and goodwill towards each other. This is history everybody needs to know about, that we need to make sure it's not forgotten, that our children uh, will know about, um, not, to, um, not to scare them, um, but to make them aware of the mistakes of the past so that we don't repeat them. Goodness is not something that you'd run away from. Being good was why he was, Father Coyle was, was actually attacked. 
for doing what he was supposed to do. That's what he, what, that was the purpose. So you just keep going and going and going. And if, it, if you're good at, at what you do, you'll be blessed as he's blessed and remembered. Father Coy was a zealous and devoted missionary. He labored and preached the word of God in season and out of season, visiting the sick, instructing the little ones of the poor, needy, and afflicted. During that tense and threatening period for Catholics, Father Coy was courageous and unwavering in publicly defending the church and what Catholics believe. He brought a dynamic spirit to the parish, emphasizing faithful attendance at Sunday Mass, love of the Eucharist and the Blessed Mother, and a deep belief that all people should be treated equally, regardless of social status, race, and religious preference. In addition to his parish duties, he was active in many community organizations and served as chaplain of the Birmingham chapter of the Knights of Columbus. His tragic death underscored the simple gospel he was always expounding by the word and example. Catholics in Birmingham have never forgotten the outrage. Father James E. Coyle remains a model of faithful and courageous priestly service today. Father Coyle knew what he believed. Father Coyle lived what he believed. And Father Coyle laid his life down. In celebration of Father Coyle's life and legacy, St. Paul's Cathedral held a mass on August 11th, 2021, 100 years to the day after his death. of 100 years ago brought together people of different faiths. Many throughout the Birmingham community came to pay respects. Ministers of other faiths lauded the ministry of Father Coyle and expressed their horror at what occurred. Reverend H. H. Bowen of the Methodist Episcopal Church, Reverend Stevens' pastor, also noted our entire church is horrified by this terrible, tragic occurrence. We believe in constituted authority as the means by which to settle differences. Father Coyle's legacy is that he lived his word. Our Lord reminds us through St. John's Gospel, greater love no one has than to lay down his life for his friends. words he wrote shortly before his death. Give. Give until it hurts. Then, only then, is there sacrifice.
All right, welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that. I, I thought it was uh, the first time I got to see it myself, and it's just wonderful. Um, we'd like to welcome to the show Jim Pinto. He is the founder and director of the Father James E. Coyle Memorial Project. We also want to welcome the rector and pastor of the Cathedral of St. Paul, right here in Birmingham, Alabama, Father Brian Jerebek. Father Brian, good to have you with us. Thank you. Good to see Jim, you, Father. we have you here all the time. It's great to have you in the stu this here. studio as well. Absolutely. Um, this was, um, you know, something difficult. And, you know, you made a comment that, you know, in there uh, when you uh, were in the video that, um, you know, there may not be physical violence, but actually we're experiencing we are. a yeah. lot of physical violence mm -hmm. against Catholic churches mm -hmm. since 2020. So just in the last two years, there have been uh, 203 attacks right. on Catholic churches. Mm. And then once the leak about the Supreme Court decision on abortion was, you know, came out, another 66 attacks, you know, arson and other things going on, desecration. So this is still a reality. I would say this, the only, the main difference is that instead of people in the white sheets, it's the Antifa types who are wearing black ninja stuff. I don't know if you all realize this too, but the Ku Klux Klan's white sheets, that that whole thing with the yeah. cross and all. You know who designed that? No. Hollywood. Oh. That was from the movie Birth of a Nation. Okay. And now the modern version of it <laughs> is from ninja movies or something. I don't know. So um, Hollywood is showing its face here too. But this is a reality. <laughs> and Father Coyle is a hero for all of us to remind us to stand up. Have any other comments about this? I'm just so blessed that EWTN has aired this, you know, all over the world. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I discovered Father Coyle years back, um, went to his grave, prayed. I was a lapsed Catholic, asked his direction in my life, radically changed my life, came back to the church. Mm -hmm. Father Coyle is amazing in so many dimensions, Father. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was he's ordained at 23, <laughs> went to Mungry College, Jesuit College, pre-seminary. Um, and it was an apostolic college. Uh, he was a missionary. He was filled with zeal, as his bishop said, um, left Mother Ire there, loved that, and came over here. He was a real shepherd of his people, yeah. as Father Jerobic can share. People loved him in the congregation. He was a great catechist. That's what I found when I prayed at his grave, that he helped me to understand what I left and, and to return to the church. Great catechist, great lover of uh, the Blessed Virgin Mary, mm -hmm. uh, speaking about the sacrament of five o'clock in the morning, uh, confessions at six, mass, and had such a devout people who loved the Lord, loved the mass. And um, something too with that schedule, uh, you youngsters may not remember this, but in the old days when I was a kid, uh, you could not go to communion or you could not eat anything before communion. So he couldn't even have a glass of water. Yeah. So he's up at five and is not celebrating mass till seven or so. Yeah. And 
couldn't even have a glass of water. So uh, this was a very serious kind of preparation for Holy Mass that he and his people did. And, and it turns out that when he did die, that was the largest funeral yes. in the history of Birmingham. Father Jerbeck, you've been going over some of the cathedral records, because mm -hmm. there's, of course, we keep a lot of records of things. Uh, what have you seen in some of those records? Yeah, we have um, about 18 volumes of basically parish chronicles that he kept. And uh, this is, of course, before the time of bulletins, parish bulletins. And so he would write down his thoughts for each week about um, maybe the saint's day that was going to be uh, the saints that were going to be celebrated that week, mm -hmm. about parish groups, uh, all the things happening in the parish. And mm -hmm. you could see that it was a bustling parish from those chronicles. And that Father Coyle had such a great priestly heart. Mm -hmm. you know, he was killed mm -hmm. when he was on the rectory porch praying his breviary. That was like his normal daily posture. He was always praying his breviary. And from that prayer flowed his ministry um, to so many different types of people who were also really in the minority, as then, as is now the case also, Catholics are still in the minority here in Alabama. But yeah, we're, we're about what, two, three percent of Alabama? I, I think it's closer to four now, but it's four. still, okay. it's still <laughs> well, we've doubled. very low, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nice. yeah. So um, he, you know, he, he had his work cut out for him, but he had a bustling parish because people lived downtown then, more so than now. Now they're starting to move back in, but, <clears throat> but he, um, he was, you know, young, old, baptizing, marrying, uh, celebrating the sacraments, hearing confessions on a regular basis, and was completely dedicated to that. And you can see as you read through these chronicles, for example, the way that he would write about the saints or the way that he would speak about a parish organization, that he was always trying to teach his people because he knew that they were up against a lot when they went out into the world to have to defend their, their yes. faith and, yeah. and live that out. So. Yeah, no, so that, that's, that's an important part. And um, it, it's kind of amazing that it was such a bustling parish. Mm -hmm. a lot of, with Catholics being such a small minority, those who were here were very active in the church. Mm -hmm. You were either going to be yeah. a really good Catholic right. or you'd fall away. Mm -hmm. right. it, it, it wasn't easy yeah. to stay sort of yeah. neutrally schlepping through yes, life. Right. Right. Yes. And, you know, this period of time, especially from 1915 uh, to 1921, when he was assassinated, 1904 to 1921, he was there. But the bishop, Bishop Allen, says, you know, this wasn't always like this in Birmingham. He said, when I came 20 years before Father Coyle, I got a pretty warm reception, of course, from the Catholics, from other people here. But something happened in 1915, and it had to do with uh, how they were going to run elections to win elections. It began down in Florida, going anti-Catholic strong and mobilizing Protestant people right. against Catholics. And so Father Coyle was always dealing with questions. He was a great apologist. Um, the main source of media was newspapers. He was in the newspaper, you know, almost every day. And, uh, but uh, the conversation went from, well, you, you worship Mary, uh, you worship a wafer, and he would have conversations about that. It would be in the paper. It went from that to... Uh, you want the Pope to be a monarch over America. Right. You are the chaplain for the Knights of Columbus. You are stockpiling weapons. You Catholics are kidnapping little girls 
And then they passed through the state legislature a convent uh, inspection law, and they can go into to convents, they can go into schools, they can go without a warrant and look for weapons and look for, so Catholics then became stereotyped, villainized, dangerous, insurrectionists. There was the word that you're an insurrectionist. And so Father Coyle's life so was... I feel like I'm on, you, you bet your life, say the magic word, and the tuck brings a $100 bill. But his life, you know, it wasn't, that was the straw that broke the camel's back, that he would do this marriage. But for six years at least, his life was under threat every day. The bishop called him in and said, I just want you to know the FBI has been here. You are a target. They want to kill you, the Klan. And, and, and he had to live with this every day. He was a man who knew what another uh, person who gave his life knew, a, a, a Protestant minister. He said, when Jesus Christ calls a man, he bids you to come and die. Father Coyle settled that as a young lad. His Ireland was under British rule. He had people that their resources were taken, their homes uh, you know, taken to receive capital punishment because they were insurrectionists. And so then he, he put his heart into ministry, came here, and then he became, after years, you're a Catholic insurrectionist. And, but he, he did not flee. He stood his ground. He loved every night, as Father was saying, he would pray on that porch to let people see a Catholic. He was there. He, had an, he, was, he was really a missionary disciple, you know, missionary disciple, making disciples, loving the church, loving the sacraments, but you got to stand on the threshold between the world and the church. That's what we're being called to today, to be missionary disciples. We love the church, we're being fed, but you got to get out on the street and you, you got to say, hey, this is what a Catholic's like. There's a lot of ignorance out there. I want to talk to you about it. You may lose your life because the reproaches that fall upon Christ will fall upon you. We're seeing it in our own time. He is a man for this time. Yeah. Yeah, and it's... Uh you know, something where we have to be also alert. Uh, I've been reading how some of the Catholic leadership have been going to the Justice Department, especially to Attorney General uh, Merritt Garland. And he refuses, and the Justice Department refuses to investigate these anti-Catholic acts of violence against churches. Right. Um, it, it's, you know, it, it yeah. sort of reminds of yeah. the Pontius Pilate, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. wa trying to wash his hands, mm -hmm. but the, the, there's, right. it's, it's an acceptable right. thing to be anti-Catholic yes. again for especially folks on the progressive side yes. of things. You stereotype, marginalize, mm -hmm. villainize, criminalize, persecute, take him out. Yes. And, and they were saying to Father Cole, you know, maybe you need to back up a little bit and maybe you're, you know, you're, you're out there too much. And he said, well, maybe I'm sharing too much. I don't know. He said, but I tell you this, unless Catholics get backbone and we define ourselves and they don't define us, they're coming after us. Right. And then they killed them. Yep. Yep. And I think this is a, an important thing for all of us to be alert to. I know there was somebody in our studio audience who had a question um, and I'd like her to have a chance because it's a okay. point of information. Uh, Ma'am, where are you from? 
Hello. Um, we are from Connecticut. Yeah. We traveled to Georgia to see my husband's best friend for my husband's 50th birthday. Cool. <laughs> cool. And uh, his birthday present that he wanted was to come to EWTN. We come every 10 years. So his best friend's okay, but he really wanted to come here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so what is your question about uh, this Film, well, okay, so we were really happy to come down here, and I thought it would be a really happy story we'd hear tonight. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, it, this is a very sad story that we heard. Yeah. Um, we are trying very hard to impart our beautiful and rich Catholic faith onto our grandchildren, and to hear stories like this is very sad. But we know as Catholics we've been persecuted for many years um, from the time of Jesus. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we hope to stand strong as Father Coyle did. Right, right. Um, so Father Coyle, pray for all of us. Right. My question is um, the couple that he married. Yeah. Um, I'm hoping for a happy story. Yeah. I'm hoping they had a, a good marriage and yeah. stayed Catholic. <laughs> uh, you're going to have to go back to Georgia for <laughs> happiness, I'm afraid. It wasn't that happy an ending for no, the I, I, couple. I think it's very difficult for us to understand the hatred for Catholicism, the hatred for Father Coyle and what took place here, it absolutely exploded in the city of Birmingham. And it's very hard to even find out. You don't hear about, um, you know, Ruth Stevenson. She kind of disappears. We don't know where Pedro is. It is like they got together and they, they were together and we knew where they were, like, like disappeared. It was like they could be killed. He could be killed. As a matter of fact, he did die years later in front of St. Paul's church in a hit and run. He was killed. Okay, so, um, but no, it wasn't a happy marriage. Uh, I don't even know if they really ever got together and she traveled up north, there was a divorce in it. Um, so it was just terrible how this exploded this way. But I will say this. And she died fairly young. She died at age 28 years old of tuberculosis. Yeah. Um, and so, no, it, this didn't go well. And so a, a lot of people, as time went on, said, well, he should, should have never done that wedding and so on. And so then he got killed for doing the wedding, and it didn't work out in the whole thing. I said, but they don't, you don't understand the story, that this man's life was under the threat for at least seven years that I know of. And it wasn't about, if that marriage didn't work, it may not even been about them. It may have been just about that culture at that time that was so hate, hateful and vicious. But we can never blame Father Coyle. I mean, he's, he's, he's uh, noted for, for giving his life, that they could have the free will. And, and the bishop at that time, you know, said said that uh, he was a martyr to duty, that Father Coyle was a martyr to duty. He was the first one to call him a martyr. He, he had a couple. It was right by law. It was right by the church. They took their vows. He witnessed their vows. And then he was killed, shot down in cold blood with no one to help him. He's a martyr to his duty. He was always doing his duty. The outcomes of, of marriages, it's not about the priest. It's about what these people do right. with it. And not just these people. It was about the culture at that time. I don't think we can imagine the intensity. They couldn't live in that area. Nobody would, would take, they had to hide. They had to go into right, hiding. Right. It's terrible. We have a caller as well. Hello, Michael? Yes, Father. Yeah, you're calling from up in Washington State? Yes, Spokane, Washington, home of the, yeah. Home yeah, of oh, it's yeah. a beautiful city. I, I love Spokane. What yeah, is your... Yeah, we have your... next door to us, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I've been up there for giving retreats. Good. What, I know you have, uh, yeah. What's your question tonight? Well, my question is, why wasn't the trial held in another city besides Birmingham? 
where the Ku Klux Klan did not have that much influence, and uh, how much influence does the Ku Klux Klan have today? I don't know about it going any place else or whatever, and that place was just so controlled. And this is another part of it. I mean, it's a political part of it. It's the judicial system, and they were in control of everything. The uh, judge was Klan. Many in the jury were Klan. Uh, Hugo Black would become Klan two years after. I mean, this this was all arranged. This was set up. People circled the horses, and and this is what what took place. Five day. It was a total. You talk about being rigged. It was a rigged thing, and the, but after it, why didn't they appeal it? Why didn't go whatever? The intensity of this thing, everything around them, the Klan, the power of that, and, and the way our people, the Catholics, dealt with it. And, and I've got all the records on that. It's in the books that we've written. It was just so beautiful. It was so painful for the people at that time. Wonderful things were said about Father Cole. His, his casket was open. They wanted you to see the bullet you know, that hit him in the eye and in the temple. Two days to view him. And, uh, and then they laid him to rest. But their position was, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Father, yeah. forgive them. That's it. They buried him. But the story got buried with it as well. And so it's just being resurrected to say it's very painful, but this man needs to be known because he was about the immigrant. He was about, he was about the widow. He was about the orphan. He was about people from all different lands. He was about, he was about dialogue. He was about discussion. He was about don't be afraid. Just, just you're not informed about who we are. Let's talk about this. And for seven years he knew he was under threat to die, but he wouldn't stop praying on the porch, on that threshold. I pray one day he'll be exhumed and be buried again at that place that he would go back on the porch, you mm. know, in that area. Too. Yeah, I, I think, Michael, too, it's, it's hard for us to, re, to think about how powerful <laughs> the Ku Klux Klan became. There wasn't a city in Alabama where you could change the venue. There, there just wasn't, wouldn't have been a place. Well, maybe Mobile, because there's more Catholic population down there, maybe. But, you know, the Klan used to have national conventions. You can see photographs of the Klan marching down Pennsylvania Avenue for, in front of the White House on its way down to the Capitol. They would have their national convention right before the Democratic National Convention and flow right into it. This was that yeah. they were very much a power uh, force in the country. And um, in fact, Margaret Sanger, the foundress of Planned Parenthood, spoke five times at the National Convention of the Ku Klux Klan. This was a fairly accepted, it's become criminal. And today, I I've not heard of anything with the Klan today. Uh, it's, 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 yeah. That's just not, it's not a function right now. Yeah. So uh, it's, you know, that, that's sort of past. I think we have another okay. question from our studio audience. Sir, where are you from? Hello, I'm born and raised in St. Louis, Missouri, but I live here in Birmingham. There you go. So what can we do for you today? Uh, well, my question is, uh, so you said that Father Coyle had the largest, uh, largest funeral uh, in Birmingham, and you've kind of already started to st uh, speak about this, Jim, but I was wondering, um, what is uh, Father Coyle's sort of current level of popular devotion? Popular devotion is is growing now that his story has really just been resurrected over the last you know 20 years or so. So there's there's many people hearing now 
Father brings people periodically uh, over to his gravesite to pray. Uh, we're hearing people in different parts of, of the country about Father Call. Ireland, of course, is all on board. God bless them in giving so many Irish missionaries, giving, giving their son. And I think uh, after this <laughs> documentary that you all are showing, and he's just beginning to get known. And if people, mm -hmm. that was his thing. Just get to know a Catholic. Just look at a Catholic. Just see a Catholic. And as I encountered him at his own grave, it radically changed my life. If you have, you know, wayward children, people who've left the church or you don't understand the faith, Father Coyle's the guy for you. I mean, it really, really worked for me. And I want to speak to something that the good lady, you know, shared before. This is such a sad story and so on. The cross was ugly. Yeah. And the Jew said, cursed be the one who hangs upon the cross. Right. And the Greek said, this, this is stupidity. But it's the glory of the Lord. This is a man who gloriously knew what he believed, lived what he believed, lived under threat of murder for seven years, and willfully threw himself into the world, just loving people. And so it's glorious. God can take every evil and turn it into a good. He'll take the curse and turn it into a blessing. He'll take death and he'll turn it into life. We're not talking about you go black. We're not talking about Edward Stevens. We're speaking about Father James E. Coyle tonight. Right, right. Yeah, it's, uh, I think that that's an important thing, especially now, you know, we, we, we've seen over the last few years that our country has become very polarized, almost down the middle. Uh, half the country <coughs> polarized, but yeah. there are people who aren't quite so polar, but there's a lot of polarization. And people get riled at each other fairly easily. And those of us who have faith have to remember somebody like Father Coyle. More importantly, we have to remember Jesus Christ himself, who suffered in an unjust trial. <laughs> with someone, with a cynic, you know, it was Pontius Pilate who said, what is truth? And in a cynical way, you know, that he's the patron, he's not a saint, but he's the patron of cynics. And, you know, this is something that happened to our Lord, and that was for our salvation. Right. Father Coyle, is for our encouragement, right. along with so many saints. Um, last century, uh, the 20th century, was the time of the largest number of martyrs in the history of the church. There were more martyrs in the 20th century than in the previous 19 centuries combined by 5 million, right. more than the previous 19 centuries. Um, atheists and nationalists, socialists and communists have been vicious toward the church. We have to be more evangelical. This is a key thing. You know, uh, Hugo Black, too, I don't know, uh, we, we talked a little bit about this earlier, but Hugo Black continued to be anti-Catholic through the rest of his life. He changed his attitudes on race. Yes. And this is to be commended on his part. Yes. He just like, and, and also like the Democratic Party was very much con, con, connected with the Ku Klux Klan. They right. completely repudiate that. Right. And they repudiate the Jim Crow laws. And the, the, people change. And I think that's important to yeah. see that they can change. 
know that the immorality yeah. of bigotry yeah. is now rejected officially by the, the Democratic Party. They're against it, and they fight against it. God bless them. But we also have to see this. He uh, and uh, Hugo Black voted with everybody. I think it was a unanimous vote on Brown versus School right. Board. Right. Where right. it was a when he was on Supreme schools. Court. And the Lovings case that blacks and whites could marry. And that was his whole case. Yep. That, that he was a black man. She was. Oh, this is terrible. But then he changed it and voted with blacks and whites could marry. Yeah. But he but he continued. He wrote a law for the state of Oregon to make Catholic schools illegal. <laughs> and he also had two decisions in 47 and 1948 that, you know, where he introduced the notion of separation of church and state, that there's a wall of separation between church and state. He's the one that brought that in. Yeah, I did not know that, yeah. And not the Constitution. That's very important to know. And he did it against... Catholics getting some benefits uh, from the uh, state of New Jersey, yeah. your home state. So this is something um, very important. Now, we're going to show this documentary again. And I think this has been on PBS in Alabama. Yeah, they already yeah, showed it. PBS in Alabama showed it already. And we're going to show it again on EWTN on Thursday, August 11th. Tomorrow. At feast at, at 3:30 p.m. Eastern time, and 11 p.m. Eastern time, you can get a DVD copy for yourself. It's going back to our catalog, ewtnrc.com, and it is item 1009D. So 1009D. Um, you can also find out more about. The, what's going on by going to the fathercoil.org. So fathercoil, one word, dot org. Or there's even a phone number you can call for the memorial project. It's 205-969-0771. Thank you both for being with us tonight and for doing the work on this documentary for both of you. And Father, join me in a blessing of the sure. people. May Almighty God bless you all and keep you, the Father, the Son, <clears throat> and, and the Holy, Holy Spirit. Spirit. Amen. Amen. We can bring you this documentary and all the other programs we do, including uh, Jim and Joy's program, <laughs> only because the network is brought to you by you. So as Mother would ask us to do, Please keep us in between your gas bill, your electric bill, and your cable bill, and we'll be able to pay all of our bills too. Thank you, and God bless.